All right. So before we like really, I think, get into the meat of, of what I what I want to talk about, I, I, here's like if you're like a person who like needs a moment to check out, like this is your moment, okay? Because I'm going to go into like the I'm going to give you a little bit of background on the book. I think it's important, but I'm just saying if there was a moment you were going to check out, this is probably it, okay? But uh, but here's here's the thing about the Gospel of Mark. It was written by a guy named Mark. Well, there you go. Okay. So guy named John Mark. But he's not just writing his own ideas and his own thoughts. Right? As we read throughout church, church history, very early, what we find is people recording that John Mark, that Mark wrote down um, the things that Peter preached. And most people think that then John Mark was, had, had been a companion of, of Peter, that he had followed around, gone around with, with Peter, and that then as Peter preached and did all of these things, people kind of went like, Man, it's great to hear Peter talk, but I'd love to have that written down. You've got great handwriting. What do you think? You know, kind of, it was kind of one of those things where people were like, hey, maybe you could do that for us. Like, would you write down the things that he, he's been saying and, and, and telling people about Jesus, all these stories about what Jesus did? And so it tells us that Mark then, all the things that Peter was, was speaking and preaching and saying, like he wrote down. And what's interesting is that this, this meant most people would agree that this is the very first of the Gospels that was written. So Mark was the first, and then you've got Matthew and Luke and John that come after that, right? But that this was, this was the very first. And most people also think that, uh, that the Gospel was written somewhere in the late 50s AD or early 60s. Like somewhere in there, there's some disagreement. People go, oh, I think it was a little bit earlier. I think it was a little bit later. But most, most people would agree somewhere kind of in that sort of, you know, five, six year span of like the end of the 50s, the beginning of the 60s, um, like that's, that's when the Gospel of Mark uh, was, was written. And it was written primarily to a, a Gentile audience. It wasn't necessarily written primarily for Jews. And so one of the nice things about the Gospel of Mark, for those of us who are not Jews, <laughs> is that, that Mark actually gives us some cultural things. So as you read the book, you'll find certain things, like kind of in, the, you know, in brackets they're saying like, and the Jews always wash their hands because, you know, because of these ceremonies. And, all, and you're like, oh, well, thanks for that, because I wouldn't have known that otherwise, right? So Mark kind of gives us these moments, these tips, these helps, uh, to kind of help us understand even Jewish culture a little bit, which is... You know, very much appreciated, but it tells us that he's writing primarily to people who are not Jews. So we know very early on, even in the history of the church, that the church is full of people from every tribe, tongue, nation, that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, before it was even written down, it was just oral. It had already gone almost to the ends of the known world at that time that it had already made it to Rome, possibly even to Spain. It had already made it to these places. You know, there were people from literally all over the Mediterranean world who were following Jesus. And they were trying to figure out these things like, how do I follow Jesus? And this is one of the things I think the Gospel of Mark helps to address. How do I follow Jesus? You know, this last series, we talked very practically about many ways that we can, you know, add habits and, and things into our lives to help us be better followers of Jesus. But the Gospel of Mark, I think, then gives us this insight into who Jesus was, what Jesus was like. So as we talked about the last series, we can get to know Jesus. We can know Jesus. But it's not just to, to know him, but to be like him. And so the Gospel of Mark is a great place to start to know Jesus so that then we can be like Jesus and do the things that Jesus did so that we can live the gospel and share 
the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. All right, so there, there's kind of your sort of historical backdrop overview. I tried to keep it as short as possible um, for those of you who, you know, don't appreciate these sorts of things like dates and, and all of that, right? Okay? But here's, here's where I want to start, really, with the meat of the sermon. And it's with a question. It's with a question that I think the Gospels, over and over, each one of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each in their own way as they tell the story of Jesus, and they do. They're histories, they're biographies, um, but they're written in different ways. Sorry, one last nerd note. Okay, so the Gospel of Mark is not necessarily written in chronological order. And this is one of the difficulties when people try and put everything in order, right? When you read the Gospels, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, bang, 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 you know, right at right one another, you kind of go like, well, that doesn't make sense. Because when we write history, right, we write it linear. Like, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. But they didn't write history like that, okay? They didn't write history like that. Like, Mark would have had no idea what you're talking about. Like, why would I write a history linearly? Because I'm trying to actually share something to prove a point, to share ideas and points with this. It's not just history for history's sake, but it's history trying to tell you and to explain to you about who this Jesus is and why he's so important, right? And so that's the way histories and biographies were, were written in those days. So just, again, last note there. As you read Mark, let's, let's just know, like, it's not always gonna line up perfectly, timeline-wise, <laughs> with, Matthew and Luke and John, and that's okay, all right? It's one of those things we just have to be okay with and realize for them, it wouldn't have made any sense to do that. <laughs> like that's a fairly modern phenomenon, writing history linearly, okay? So that's the last note, but here's the same. They all ask a similar question. Each one of them, as we, they tell the stories of Jesus, as we find Jesus's words, you know, particularly I think in the Gospel of John, we see it really spelled out, and it's this question. What do you want? What do you want? That's the question Jesus asked his disciples, right? When, when, two of his, when two guys come to him, after they've been following John the Baptist, they come to him, and they, you know, this is in the Gospel of John, it's not in Mark, but when they come to him, they say, you know, you know they, they're like, oh, we want to follow you, and he kind of just says to them, what do you want? What do you want? And I think that's the question, maybe framed in different ways, but as we read the Gospels, we see over and over that question, what do you want? And it's not just, what do you want for lunch? You know, it's not just like, what, you know, it's like at your deepest core, at the deepest part of who you are as a person, what do you want? And I think Jesus is touching, and, and all the Gospels do this, they touch at this fundamental thing with us. This, it's one of the deep questions of life. What do I want? And how we answer that question will say a lot about the gospel that we believe, a lot about what we think will actually bring peace and happiness. Because at its core, I think, I think that's what we want. I think we long, we desire for peace and we search for it, it's just the human condition. We will, whether we like it or not, be on a quest for peace. I think deep at our core, that's what we want. If I'm answering that question, I think that's what we want. We desire, we long for peace. And then we spend the rest of our lives trying to find it. And some of us do better than others, <laughs> right? But we, we search for it. And I think this, I, this question, again, coming back to, what do you want? I think it's a question that often we don't actually really think a whole lot about. 
We live with this idea, just from a philosophical standpoint, I guess, we live with this idea that we are thinking things. But if we actually, I, I would say, pause and think about our lives, we'd actually find more than that we're desiring things. We're like people who desire. We live by desires, right? When you wake up in the middle of the night and you have to go to the bathroom, you don't, you don't sit there and go, hmm, do I or don't I? And then, you, and then you go, well, I better get out of bed, so I gotta make sure I swing my legs over and put my feet down on the floor. Okay, and now I need to walk. Walk left, right, left, right. We don't do that, right? We just get up and we go, because we know, you know, like there's a desire in us that says you need to go, right? So you go, or you think about it, okay? Now, I understand some people think more about this than others, but when you're hungry, right, like you don't, you don't think like, hmm, my stomach is grumbling. What could that possibly mean? Right? You just know, I'm hungry, right? And then you go, you know, and if you're really hungry, you don't think a whole lot. You just kind of open up the cabinet and you start digging, right? You know, you open up the press, you open up the fridge, you just start to, you know, and you're followed by your desires. Like, that doesn't look good, that doesn't look good. There you go. You know what I mean? Like, so for the most part, we're often driven by our desire. And it's not just with silly things like that. It's like with even the core. Most of us do not think about that. You know, most of us don't sit around going, I really long for peace. Right? We don't, we don't think about that. That's not a thought we have. Like, you know, sitting around like, hmm, I really long for peace today. Maybe some days there are days where we're like, please, just peace. You know, like, but for the most part, it's not something we think about. Yet in our core, in our gut, I think that's what we long for. And then most of us don't think, how am I going to find peace today? Maybe I could try this or I could do this. We have these moments of crisis where we think about it, but more often than not, we just move in a direction right? Moving towards something that we think will bring us peace. And so that's what I want to address. This question of what do you want is really important. And I think the Gospels, including the Gospel of Mark, ask us that question. And like I said, I think it's peace. But not just peace like the absence of war or the absence of a screaming child or the, you know, like, or the absence of a screaming friend. I don't know, you know, or, you know, <laughs> like, it's not just like the absence of that, it's, it's actually more than that, right? We've talked about this many times in church, that peace in the Bible is the word shalom, and it means a wholeness, a completeness of life, right? It means that, that, you know, we talked about in the last series where Jesus says in John 10, 10, I came to bring life and life to the full. That is peace, experiencing that life to the full, which means then if I'm experiencing true peace, that wholeness, that completeness, like, that's what I was created for, right? And so we're all looking for this. This is what the gospel of Jesus promises. But here's the thing. There's lots of other things that promise that, right? There's lots of other things. So I told you, like, we all, right, we're all looking for that peace, and we're all on a trajectory looking for that peace. But here, here's the thing. So the gospel, right, as we read the very first verse, of the Gospel of Mark, right? Nan read for us. It says, this is the good news. That's what the New Living translates. Here's probably, you know, if you're not reading the New Living, probably says, this is the Gospel about Jesus the Messiah. Right there, it says something. Good news. So Gospel means good news. That's why the New Living translates it that way. Right? And two weeks ago, we talked really specifically about, yeah, it was two weeks ago, we talked really specifically about, about the Gospel. If you want to go back, listen to that sermon. It's online. You can do that. So I'm not going to like dig completely into that again. Um, but all that to say that it's good news. And all of us, every one of us, believes a gospel. Every single one of us believes a gospel. It's just a matter of what gospel do I believe. Right? And in Jesus' day, 
right, as Mark is writing this, when he says, when he starts off, this is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, it is a radical statement that he is making. Because the people who proclaimed the gospel in Jesus' day were the Caesars, the kings, the people with power who said, hey, I've got a good news message for you. I'm in charge. <laughs> and so Jesus' message of the gospel is a counter message that says, actually, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, not Caesar. Not all these other false gospels. There are other false gospels out here, but Mark is making a claim that this is the true gospel about the one true God who has come to bring peace and to rescue his people. And so everyone believes a gospel. It's just a matter of what gospel do you believe? And not just with your mind, but with your whole self. And this is, I think, important for many of us who have spent lots of time in church and heard lots of sermons where people said lots of very similar things to what I'm saying right now. What I'm not talking about is what you think with your mind. It's not just mental assent of saying like, yes, okay, I believe that. Because sometimes what we think we believe is betrayed by our actions. And we're shown to see what we really believe. Right? And so all of us believe a gospel. And sometimes we, we may actually believe a gospel we didn't know we believed. <laughs> And that's, that's scary. I mean, like, I think that's the reality for all of us as a Christian. And this is why, whether you're, you know, you're not a Christian, you're brand new to the faith, or you've been a Christian for a long time, this is so relevant. Because this will be a struggle for all of us for the rest of our lives. To fight and not believe the false gospels that promise peace, that promise prosperity, that promise life. But instead to come back to the true gospel that Mark says is the good news about Jesus the Messiah the Son of God. So I just want to talk really briefly about two false gospels that I think are really popular, that we are almost intuitively, because of the world in which we've grown up, almost intuitively are drawn to. And so the first one is this, the gospel of consumerism. I think for many of us, the gospel of consumerism has replaced the gospel of Jesus as the good news. I mean, you think, and, I, and I've, I've brought this up, you know, like thinking about like car ads and all of these things. You think about the advertising and the things that we're subjected to, and they promise a life. And maybe a life even that you, you long for. I mean, you see the people laughing with like ridiculous laughs, you know, having more fun than could be humanly possible in a Kia or whatever it is, you know, like uh, you see people just in, you know, like, it's not just that. I mean, like, you think about clothing advertising and everything like that. I mean, all the advertising in the world, like, it's a, it's a, you know, it pushes this idea that if you have these things, if you go and you buy, if you continue to consume, you will be happy. And so what's happened for many of us is, like, it used to be a world where we, we thought that, that happiness, that joy, that peace could be found, to a certain degree at least, in, in self-denial of saying, you know what, I don't need these things. I don't need that in my life. I can say no to these things. And now what's happened, right? There's a shift in our world. That self-denial is like completely, <laughs> nobody talks about self-denial, right? It's like self-gratification. We live in a world of self-gratification. And I think some of that is because how many of our clothing companies, car companies, and all of that thrive on you being dissatisfied? <laughs> you need this, you need this. Why? Because I can make some money off of you. So I'm going to make you feel like you need to continue to gratify that desire in you that says, I need the newest, I need the best, I need the, you know, and, and, and so uh, just an example of this, I think, this kind of turn from self-denial 
to self-gratification. Right, so you can go visit a place called Glendalough. It's beautiful. I, like it's in the Wicklow Mountains. I think it's absolutely stunning. And, and there was a guy named St. Kevin uh, who, who was there you know, several hundred years ago, like a thousand years ago, something like that. Uh, and, and he was kind of a rock star in the monastic world because he found himself a little cave, hid in the cave, wanted to get away from everybody, deny himself, and all of this. Now, I think St. Kevin probably took it a little bit to the extreme, you know, so he, he hid up in a little cave, and, and then whenever he would have a, you know, an impure thought or something, he would, you know, jump into a thorn bush, and, um, you know, like, he took self-denial to an extreme, and people was like, this guy's a rock star, right? And so a whole monastic settlement, like, ended up around him, like, everybody's like, whoa, when is he going to come out of the cave and jump? You know, like, you know, whatever, like, I don't know, like, people, like, just thought, this guy, this guy is close to Jesus. He knows what he's talking about. So we're going to come listen to him, right? So there's self-denial, Right? That was like the way to happiness and to peace and to, you know, like, um, to, to draw near to God. But now, at the base of, of Glindelock, right, if you go there, there's, there's a car park. And in that car park, there's a place called Kevin's Cones. And you can get a really nice ice cream sundae or, you know, a cone. Uh, and so you can go see where St. Kevin, you know, denied himself of, like, every pleasure and threw himself into a thorn bush while you, you know, while you eat your ice cream sundae, right? You know, and, and to me, like, it's one of those, like, it's just like... It was just like one of those like moments where I had this like as I was eating my ice cream, you know, Glendalough. You know, but it's like it's one of those moments where um, you know you have that kind of like there's a shift here between saying deny yourself and always gratify yourself. Be ready at any time because there could be an ice cream truck just waiting for you to gratify yourself, right? You know, and and, and so I think it's one of those like we uh, now when we feel down or depressed, like self denial is the last thing on our mind. Instead, it's like you know. Brown Thomas there on Shop Street might have a nice, you know, handbag or, you know, like, or, or even there, if you're more in my economic status, you know, pennies might have, you know, something new, <laughs> new for you, um, right? Uh, you know, like, or Amazon or, or whatever. It's always there. It's a fingertip, you know, it's, it's one click away, one small time. You know, you just put A into Google and all of a sudden Amazon pops up, at least in my browser. That probably says something about me. Um, everywhere we're sold that self-realization and peace and happiness come through consuming. And I think that gospel is just almost taken for granted. Probably to a certain degree or another by all of us, me included. And we have to watch ourselves because it doesn't work. It's a failed gospel. We know this because we buy the new thing, we have it for a while, and then we're kind of like, I mean, it's getting a little old. You know, I could probably use the newer model or the newer thing. You know, like, look, we're all guilty of it. And I think we see that it's a, it's a failed gospel. It may give temporary reprieve from the pain of life, you know, the joy of like clicking and then waiting for it to show up in the post or, you know, whatever, waiting, yeah, uh, waiting for Mark to deliver it. Um, no, we must, but we have to keep coming back. And I think it's interesting, Tom Inglis, a sociologist at UCD, he had this quote, he says, Marx was wrong. It's not religion that is the opium of the people. It's producing and consuming that's the opium of the people. In other words, producing and consuming just keeps us coming back for more without ever actually truly satisfying. And the last one I'm just going to pick on here is the gospel of self-help. And I think that one goes right along with the gospel of consuming, actually, weirdly, and we'll, we'll kind of address that in a second. There is nothing wrong, necessarily, with self-help. Right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with seeing a counselor or anything like that. Like, hey, sometimes that's exactly what, what you need. So understand, that's not necessarily what I'm, what I'm criticizing. What, I, what I'm kind of getting at 
is that this idea of like turning inward, right? That where my peace and my, my joy will be found is just you know, having more me time and you know, gratifying myself and learning to, to love myself. And, and again, I'm not saying there may not be time where you need to learn to, to love yourself, okay? But I think that rather than the turn inward to say, I just need to love myself, it actually starts, and this is kind of spoiling the next part of my sermon, but I think more, it actually, it's, it's looking to Jesus and seeing how much he loves us and cares for us that begins to set how I view myself then and how I see myself. So it's not found looking inward, it's actually found looking to Jesus, looking out to something else and finding my worth and my dignity in him, which then has the knock-on effect, right, of how I view myself. And so that's where I think kind of the self-help movement has, has failed. Because when you go, like say you go onto like Eason's.com or to Amazon and you start looking at the self-help books. Like listen, the self-help industry, and, and many people do refer to it as an industry, is a multi-billion dollar industry. Whether that's yoga retreats or whether that's mindfulness moments or whether that's books that are going to give you the five steps to happiness. Or, you know, I mean, there's, you look like many of the best sellers are self help books. And here's why I say I think this is a, in a way, a, a false gospel. It's not that like we don't need help. We're just looking for help in the wrong place. We're attempting to find peace, that peace that we seek by looking inside of ourselves or, you know, learning not to care about this or that or the other thing. And, and, um, and we and so what ends up happening is we end up developing habits in our lives that actually just make us more selfish, that actually make us more thinking about ourselves, more concerned with ourselves. In one article from The Independent I found, it said that actually in Ireland, self-help books account for the largest portion of book sales. Inversely, the article went on to say, while it may have led to many book sales, it hasn't led to success. People are still unhappy. How about that? And unhappy, the article goes on to say, at alarmingly high rates never before recorded. So if you were to chart this out, what you would see is the happiness levels of people in Ireland is on a scale like this. And the self-help book sales are on a scale like this. So self-help book sales are getting more and more, but people are more and more unhappy. Why is that? I think we weren't made to turn inward and to look to ourselves to find happiness. And sadly, then, as I said, this has a bearing on consumerism. By buying more and more self-help books, we're attempting still to buy happiness. Right? And actually, the guy in the article, which I think is interesting because, again, he's not, he, he doesn't share my conviction uh, about Jesus at all. So as he searches for a solution to the happiness, it's not so much found in buying more self-help books. For him, it's actually saying, now that the pandemic's over, we can all go back to shopping. That was his solution, guys. That was his solution. That's the best he could do, <laughs> is to say, do you know what's going to bring up, make everybody happy again? We can shop. Whew. Right? And these are false gospels. These gospels, they lack the ability to truly bring peace. Far from bringing peace and curing anxiety, they actually do the opposite. They thrive and they breed, on, they breed unease, discontent, and competition because that's what makes money. Now, maybe you guys are like, hey, I don't struggle with those things at all. Listen, there's plenty of other false gospels. <laughs> and maybe it is good to, to take that time 
to sit and go, what are, the, what are the gospels, the good news? What do I believe is good news? To sit with that, to ask that question, what do I want? And what am I doing currently that's moving me in a direction? Like, what direction am I moving? And is it going to be what brings the peace I desire? Now, here's where we get back to the Gospel of Mark. We've had our sidebar here talking about the Gospel, right? Because, as I've said, Mark starts by saying, this is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And as we look at these first eight verses, we find that it's within this context that the Gospel of Mark makes life-altering claims. It's within this context of false gospels. Like I said, we have our false gospels. Um, and, and I think, you know, again, we could point to many of the same, the false gospel of like salvation through political, you know, electing the right people, right? I mean, there's plenty of that that goes on in our world. Well, if we could just, you know, get this person elected, then everything would be fine, right? I mean, like, and that, that right there, the gospel of Rome was that the people in charge will bring you peace. We will give you what you've longed for. And it's within this context that Mark tells the life of Jesus, and we see Jesus throughout the gospel making these sort of life-altering claims. And it starts, I said, with the bold statement that there is good news for the whole world. And I love that. Like Mark says, this is the gospel about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. He doesn't say the Son of a God. He says the Son of God, which means it has implications for the entire universe, right? This is the good news. This is the gospel about Jesus the Messiah. Now, I want to make a really bold claim that I'm sure you, you just can't imagine. It's this. The gospel of Mark is the gospel. Like, I mean, that should be obvious, right? That should be obvious, right? But, but sometimes I think what's happened is we've, in, a, in an attempt to try and like, make the gospel like one of these like really like short things that I can share really quickly, you know, and kind of just pow, you know, like hit people with. Like we've just gone like, you know, you're a sinner, you need Jesus, say a prayer, <laughs> right? And, and I believe all of those things. Like you are a sinner, so am I. We need Jesus. We should pray to him for, you know, you know and seek forgiveness and, and all of that. But, it, but there's a story connected to that gospel. And I believe that what Mark is doing here is he is giving us the good news. This is the story. This is the announcement. Mark is announcing there is good news. And the good news is not is like that Jesus has come. And we start then, because then what does he do? He immediately, and I don't know if your Bible brackets this, but he immediately jumps into an Old Testament passage. He immediately jumps into the book of Isaiah and the book of Malachi. Right? And he tells us, this, all of this is happening within a big story. <laughs> and Jesus is the fulfillment of that story. The gospel is the good news that everything that the Old Testament had looked forward to and predicted is now coming true in a person. It is an announcement that is to be read as good news to say Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah meant like king. Like he is the Lord. He's the anointed one that, that is the son of David that, had been look, looking, that the people had been looking forward to. It is a good news announcement. It is the story that the king has come, that he lived. It is the story then that Jesus died, and Mark's going to spend a huge amount of time in the last week of Jesus' life. And he's going to show us that Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose. That is good news. That is the gospel. And Mark is going to give us 
that story, that good news announcement, the good news story that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah and the Son of God. And so the Gospels are the Gospel, right? When you read Matthew, it is the Gospel. Jesus is announcing that the kingdom of God is here, right? We read this over and over, this compelling story that Jesus is the one who has brought victory. And so when we read Mark, it's not just a story. It is the gospel. It is the good news. And we are to tell that story. We are to tell that story. And so the gospel, as I said, did not come. Uh, the gospel did not come out of nowhere, right? I said, like, that he starts by announcing, you know, Isaiah. Uh, right? So he says, just as the prophet Isaiah had written. Now, your, your Bible may have a side note there that says some manuscripts include the Son of God. Or sorry, some manuscripts include, um, where's it at? Yeah, the prophets. Some manuscripts include, you know, say like the, just as the prophets had written. Reason for that is because he's not just quoting Isaiah, he's also quoting Malachi 3.1. Okay, so it's Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, I think it is. Is that what it says? Isaiah 40 and, yeah, 40 verse 3 and Malachi 3.1. So, but the oldest manuscripts we have of the Bible say this is what Isaiah, the prophet, had written. So what they think is kind of happening there is the bulk of his quote is Isaiah, and he's going to do more unpacking throughout the gospel of, of uh, you know, he's going to talk about John the Baptist, right? So, so they kind of think like, he's just kind of saying, you know, shorthand Isaiah, right? Um, we won't, like, we're not going to get into this. We don't have time. But, but yeah, it's an interesting uh, side note if you're interested to study um, study that. So, so anyway, he says, just as the prophet Isaiah had written, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. That's apart from Malachi. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road from him. So the gospel did not come out of nowhere. It's rooted in history, and I think this is important. Like, Jesus doesn't just come out of nowhere. He's root, it's rooted in a story. It's rooted in history. It's rooted in the Old Testament story. Jesus is the fulfillment of that story, the climax of everything that the Old Testament had been looking forward to. And John the Baptist had come to prepare the way for the Lord's coming. It says right there that this messenger was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness, and he preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. All of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and to hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. So right there we see John was a pretty popular guy, right? Everybody's coming out to see him. Everybody thinks like, man, John, he's legit. Like, listen to this guy. There's a new prophet. And many people in Jesus' day believed that Malachi was kind of the last prophet. There hadn't been a prophet since him. And so people were excited to hear John. They were excited. People were flooding out to see John, right? And when we read about John, his clothes were woven from coarse camel hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. I mean, you'd probably flock to see that guy too, maybe for different reasons, but you, I mean, like, it's one of those, whenever I read that, I don't know, guys, I'm sorry, I, whenever I read that, I just have this, like, picture of, like, John the Baptist in my head, like, you know, you don't know where the camel hair stops and the beard and, like, you know, the, his actual hair starts. You know, it's just like, you know, because, like, he's, obviously he's probably not showering. I guess he's in the water. But, like, yeah, you just figure, like, I don't know. Like, he's an odd guy, right? And if you read the prophets, 
Like, if you read the prophets, they were all kind of odd guys. Like, it's just kind of one of the signs of the prophets. Like, Jesus had them do some pretty weird stuff. You know, like, uh, Jesus, God, well, yeah. God had them do some pretty weird stuff, right? I mean, you find them, like, laying on their side for years. And you I mean, like, all kinds of, like, uh, I guess today we would call it, what, like, uh, what do they call that kind of, what do they call that kind of art? Like, well, eccentric, there you go. Uh, like, what's the word I'm looking for? What's the type of art? Like, uh, Performance art, thank you. The artist in the, in the group, yeah, performance art, thank you. The dancer, yeah, all right. I mean, like, you've got a lot of performance art. So I don't know how much of, like, what John the Baptist is doing is even, like, you know, performance art. Like, he was out in the wilderness, he's eating locusts, he's eating honey. You know, like, it, there's, there's something anyway. In any case, John is announcing that someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. So much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. This is important, guys. Everybody was coming out to see John. John was a big deal. And I don't think what John is doing here is just kind of false humility. Like, you know, hey, I'm not that, I'm not that big of a deal. You know, like, calm down, everybody. Like, that's not what he's doing. John was held in high regard. And he's not being overly humble. Not false humility. But he makes this statement about not being worthy to even untie the sandal. Or untie the strap of his sandal. Taking off like sandals and like washing people's feet, right? We're going to see Jesus do that later. Um, but that was the job of a slave. That was the job of a servant. That wasn't the job of somebody who was significant or important. And this is what John is saying. He goes, hey, you guys are all out here listening to me and that's all well and good, but the guy who I'm talking about, who I'm saying is coming, a whole nother level. whole nother level. I don't even compare to that guy. Like, I shouldn't even, like, like, Jesus, I shouldn't even untie his sandals. Like, that's where he's at compared to me. You think I'm great? Fine, whatever. But this guy, next level, right? It's far from my hyperbole. I think John understands who Jesus is. He understood what Mark says here. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He understands who Jesus is. And when he puts that into context, when he puts that into context, he goes, whoa, I don't even belong in tying this guy's sandals. And I wonder, if Jesus is who he claims he is, and who as Christians we believe he is, how would it change our attitude towards Jesus? How would it change our attitude towards ourselves? I mean, if I'm honest in my life, sometimes I, I come pretty entitled to God in prayer. Like, I don't come to prayer thinking, like, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. I, 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 come, I come in prayer often, like, God, what's your problem? <laughs> and I had that thought as I was sitting there with it, like, what, what would it do to me if I, I realized that more often? If I had that same like, look, like that same thought process that John the Baptist had, when I come to God in prayer, what would it do towards my attitude towards Jesus and towards myself? Again, I think in a, in a humble standpoint, like John, to say, like, hey, no matter how great I ever get or think I am, I'm nothing compared to Jesus. And yet what we see throughout the Gospels, right, and throughout the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see this. is Jesus over and over coming to the people who are insignificant, the outcasts, the downtrodden, the poor, the marginalized. 
And this one, who John was not even worthy to untie his sandal, will come to the absolute least people that no one else would give any time to, nobody would even look at. And he loves them. And he serves them. He heals them. He shows them worth and dignity. And so if I came to Jesus in prayer, the same way that John talks about Jesus, I think it could really, like, it would change. It would change our lives if we do that. Perhaps maybe we would understand our position more humbly. John invites the people then to turn back to God, to repent, which basically means to turn, <laughs> to go another direction. Right? The idea of repentance. Right? That's like a word, I think, with it we associate guilt and, you know, like there's all kinds of, I think we have this baggage of like repentance, like that word. And so sometimes I think it's helpful just to understand what he's saying. It means like reorient your life. Basically repenting is the recognition, I'm going in a direction that's probably not the best. And so I'm going to go in a different direction. And as we talk about it from a Christian perspective then, it means to get back on the path that leads to Jesus. To recognize, I'm probably heading down a path that's not great. I'm going to turn and I'm going to refocus and head down the path that leads to Jesus because that is where I will find life. And I need to remember that and I need to change my, my ways and go, like, refocus and go back to God. That's essentially, at its core, what repentance is. It is recognizing I'm headed down a dangerous road and I need to change. Right? And so what we find then is we find Jesus, or sorry, John, inviting people to turn back to God, to repent, to refocus their lives on God. He invites people. He speaks to these people and to us as well to turn from our selfish ways, to turn from the other gospels that we have believed. And to believe that, you know, for the people that John is speaking to, to believe that God's kingdom was coming, that the Messiah was here. And we're invited to trust and to believe in that same Messiah. And so, the Gospel of Mark invites us into a relationship of apprenticeship and discipleship to Jesus. This is what I think we see, right? The good news is this is who Jesus is. And then over and over throughout that gospel, we see examples of what it looks like then to follow Jesus. To know Jesus and to be like Jesus and to do what Jesus did. Now, if you've read the Gospel of Mark, I think in some ways, even more so than some of the other gospels, what we find over and over throughout the Gospel of Mark is that the disciples, his apprentices, mess up all the time. They fail all the time. They don't get it. They make mistakes. They, like, they do some of the dumbest things. And so I find the Gospel of Mark deeply relatable. <laughs> because I find myself doing some of the dumbest things. You know, that in hindsight you go, why, why did I do that? Why would I have done that? I know better, right? Or that I've learned like over my years as a Christian, like, look, I'm thankful I'm not the same person I was when I became a Christian when I was 17, right? I made a whole lot more dumb choices or different dumb choices that now I look back on and go like, man, I, 
glad I'm not that same person making those same choices, right? And then there are other choices where you go, like, have I not learned anything over the last 20 years? You know, <laughs> you know? And like, um, but the Gospel of Mark invites us into a relationship with Jesus, into a, a relationship of apprenticeship, discipleship, friendship with Jesus. Jesus became human. And this is what one of the church fathers, Cyprian, says. He says, Jesus became human. The Lord incarnate did not shrink from identifying himself with sinners who need regeneration. We are invited then. The Gospel of Mark, Jesus invites us to find forgiveness and new life in him and to be his apprentices. We find John then baptizing in verse, uh, verse 8, baptizing with water. And he says that the one who is coming will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. One of the things I think is cool is like the Bible constantly hyperlinks back to itself. Like that's one of the beauties of, of the Bible is you read the Bible, you go, wait, that sounds awfully familiar. I think of Acts chapter 2, verse 38. When the people cry out and they say, what must we do to be saved? Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> what we find is the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus brought together. It's not just about repentance, but it's about receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit as well. That you and I, when we come to Christ, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that is something that is incredibly remarkable. You and I have God living and dwelling inside of us. And so the beauty, I think, of Mark's gospel is that over and over, we are shown what Jesus is like. Over and over, we are encouraged to be like him. We are promised that one is coming, the Holy Spirit will come. And yet, over and over, we see the failures of the disciples. Of Jesus' disciples. Those 12 that were with Jesus. And I think sometimes we can think like, man, if I had just been able to be with him in person, you know, then I would, you know, I'd be a much better follower. And it's like, probably not. You look at Peter, you look at you know, James, John, right? When they really get it, it's after they receive the Holy Spirit. And you know, Jesus elsewhere says, like, look, it's going to be actually better for you when you get the Holy Spirit than just even having me with you in person. And I think that's something that can be hard for us to believe. But you and I have received the Holy Spirit. We're invited then to see that even when we fail, God is not done with us. And this, I think, is important. We need to remember as we finish God is not done with you. No matter how mature of a believer or immature of a believer you are, God is not done with you. Like, if we think about, if we think about, we put our lives in the perspective of eternity, right? Because we believe that, like, life is eternal, right? We're going to live with Jesus forever. If we put it in that perspective, no matter how long you've been a Christian, God's just starting with you, <laughs> right? God is not done with you. So I want to encourage you, the Gospel of Mark is for you. It may not have been written necessarily to you, but it is for you, and it is for me, and it is for us as a church. And so maybe you're somebody who's felt like you've wasted much of your life. Maybe you think, I've made so many mistakes. I've failed so many times. Maybe you're somebody who's been mistreated. Maybe you're somebody who has mistreated 
people. Maybe you felt not good enough or inadequate. Or maybe you're a person that's the opposite and you need Jesus just as badly <laughs> as the person who feels inadequate. Maybe you felt very, very adequate and you tend to look down on other people. I don't know. Maybe you felt anxious. Maybe you felt over busy. Maybe you felt angry. Look, the disciples feel all of those feelings. We'll see it throughout the Gospel of Mark. And it is a reminder over and over that God is not done with you. When you mess up, God's not done with you. When you think too, too much of yourself or too little of yourself, God is not done with you. He loves you. He cares for you. He wants to be with you. And he wants to make you like him. All right, so finish just with this. This question again, what do you want? What do you want? And I want you to be asking that question as we look through the gospel over and over. What do you want? What is the gospel that you believe? And if you're kind of like, you know what? I want that peace that Jesus offers. Here's just some practical tips. If it's Jesus that we want, here's where we can start. Read the gospel. Like the gospel of Mark isn't that long. Read it. Because there you encounter Jesus. Read the gospel. Believe the good news. Turn to Jesus. And then do it again over and over for the rest of your life. That's the pattern of following Jesus. No matter where you are in your walk with Christ, start there. <laughs> Read the gospel, believe the gospel, turn to Jesus, do it again. <laughs> so that's my encouragement to you this morning. God is not done with you. No matter where you are in your life, God is not done with you. And he wants to give you that life to the full that we talked so much about in the previous series. And so I'm looking forward to continuing you know, the next eight verses, or however far we're going next week. But until then, I just want to pray for pray for us and then